I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning. Verses 1 through 5, we'll read together at the beginning. And then we'll read the rest as I talk my way through the chapter throughout the next, I would say half an hour, but it might, might be an hour. All right, so let's, let's pray together and then we'll go. Father, we just ask again that you would help us. I feel the weight of a moment like this. This is, this is a, again, a time where we, we all need to hear God speak. That's why we come here. We need to hear your voice through voices like mine. Please do that this morning. Please speak to us so that we can hear truth from you, that we can be changed by it. And I ask for your Holy Spirit to show up in a special way this morning as we talk about the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. That the, the manifestation of us hearing and believing would be present. and That by your grace we could be changed more, more, more so into the kind of people that you desire us to be. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We'll wrap up our series today entitled, The Spirit and His Gifts. This is the last, the fourth and last part of the series, and, and we're going to do that by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And as we do, we're going to answer just a few questions as we read. Number one, what kind of prophecy is Paul talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Number two, what are the things that we should always insist upon as a church, when it comes to the way in which we show the Holy Spirit in our public gatherings. And number three, practically speaking, won't answer this to the fullest extent, but practically speaking, what might that look like here at Redemption Hill? Alright, so three questions there. Um, Lord, help us again as we read. Let's read verses 1 to 5 together and then we'll go through these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. And so here in these first five verses, we, we see Paul talking about tongues, we see him talking about prophecy, and what, what kind of prophecy does he have in mind? We dealt with the issue of speaking in tongues last week. This week, let's turn to prophecy as we begin, and what, what exactly does Paul have in mind here when he speaks about prophecy? Well, verse 1 tells us to earnestly desire to do it. So it's got to be a good thing. And whatever Paul means by prophecy here, at least we know at the very beginning what he does not mean. This is important to understand. He does not mean the sort of thing that we would call Old Testament prophecy. The kind of thing that we read about in certain parts of the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, or chapter 18, verses 18 to 22, I'm going to read this to you. And just here are some things that are typical of Old Testament prophecy. And there are some differences between what you're going to see here and what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18 to 22, and this is from the New International Version, God is speaking to Moses and He says, I will raise up for Israel a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put My words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. Now you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, 
That is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. In other words, don't be afraid of him. Put him to death. Prophecy under the Old Testament, these men were speaking the very words of God. Or this woman, if God had a prophet and she was speaking, she was speaking the very words of God. Thus says the Lord. They would speak, and the words which followed, thus says the Lord, were every bit as binding upon God's people as the Scriptures themselves. These were God's very own words, such that to disobey the words of a prophet was to disobey God Himself. And you can see that in verse 19. God says, if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. And the penalty for disobeying God here, if you were a prophet who, who spoke something presumptuously in the name of the Lord, but God had not really said it, and you caused to be binding upon His people something that was not a part of His will and His command, there was a death sentence for this. This is how serious God took the business of speaking accurately His very words. You would die in the presence of the Lord if you, if you spoke presumptuously on His behalf. Now, how many of you are still eager to prophesy? Not as many, huh? Unless, wait, maybe, maybe what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians is different. Alright, so don't let me lose you yet. But you can see the nature of this Old Testament prophecy and, and what, what, it, what it really all entailed. Now, on the other hand, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, there are some differences in what Paul is speaking about. And we'll look at certain parts of the Bible to show us some of these differences. One of the differences we need to keep in mind between the kind of prophecy we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and the sort of thing we just saw in Deuteronomy is that New Testament prophecy, which is what I'd like to call it, New Testament prophecy does not carry the same authority as Scripture. I'll say that again. New Testament prophecy does not carry the same authority as Scripture. All right, and I know some people who probably need to pay very close attention to this because I've seen them do this in a way that makes it sound as if their words do carry the same authority as Scripture. Redemption Hill, that is not the case. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 37 to 38. Now watch, this is very interesting. Watch what the Apostle Paul says. After giving some instructions to the Corinthian church, he comes to a part in this chapter here where he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. You want to be recognized as a prophet? You're not recognized if you do not recognize the fact that your words do not carry the same weight as the written word of the apostles. Paul is emphatic here. The Scriptures, and not the words of some prophet, are the final authority of all matters of faith and practice in the church. Do you see it there in black and white? If anyone thinks he is a prophet, and many do, there are some instructions for such people. He should acknowledge that the things written by apostles like Paul in this book stand above in authority what he is saying. His words are not the very words of God and the command of the Lord, but rather the words of Scripture fill that place for us today. This is very important to understand. Yet, as we see Paul talking about this, he still makes room for something that he calls prophecy. Right? So the authoritative word of the Apostle being given to the Corinthians in this letter, preserved for us today in the Scriptures, is the final rule and the final authority for all things in the church. However, Paul says, while that is there, there still is this thing called prophecy. It just needs to be kept in its proper place. It is not equal in authority to Scripture. Can everybody say amen? We're going to get to a part of chapter 14 which gives you permission to say amen when you understand the truth that is being told. Right? 
you can say amen. So here it is. It's clear that New Testament prophecy is, is not equal in authority with the Scriptures. It, it is also clear that New Testament prophecy... Now, you pay, pay very close attention. New Testament prophecy can contain errors without inviting a death sentence. Very important for us to... I want you to really listen to what I have to say here. Better yet, I'll, here, listen to what God has to say. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 to 22. Watch this. The Apostle Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Now, he only says this because many people already, even at this point, have many reasons to want to quench the Spirit and to despise prophecies. They've gotten the sort of prophecies that some of you have gotten. John Piper tells one story of his wife, Noel, being pregnant with their fourth child and a lady in the church coming up with her hands trembling and saying, this is the sign that I'm getting a prophecy from the Lord. Uh, you're... Your fourth son, who is, who is a boy, your, your, your fourth, fourth child is going to be a girl and Noel is going to die in childbirth. And Piper just says, look, I have plenty of reason to despise prophecies. It's not the only time that's happened to me. He says, but I read 1 Thessalonians 5 and I'm not permitted to despise prophecies. And neither are any of us. So let, all right, let's read the rest of what he says here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Is it not clear that this is something altogether different from what we see in Isaiah and Jeremiah's ministry? Can you imagine God saying, now, Israel, listen to what Isaiah says, but test it. I know Jeremiah sometimes, you know, he's just in a different mood. Make sure you test everything he says. No, this is something altogether different. The understanding of New Testament prophecy we get from the Bible is that it can contain errors such that when we hear it, instead of despising it, we're supposed to hear it, but we're supposed to have some basis for testing it. Precisely because it's, it's, it can contain errors. So we test it. What do we use to test it? Yeah, the Scriptures. The Scriptures. So we test, now let me give you, here's a sort of definition for what then this New Testament prophecy is. Tongues is unintelligible, spirit-inspired speech. I would like to call, in the words of Gordon Fee, here, prophecy is intelligible, spirit-led speech that is spoken to others for their, now I'm going to put in chapter 14, verse 3, spoken to others for their Upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Intelligible, spirit-led speech that is spoken to others for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Yet, this spirit-led speech can possibly contain errors and must therefore be carefully tested against Scripture, which is intelligible, spirit-led speech that does not contain error. That's, that's how this works. Alright, so we don't have to, as a church, despise prophecies. We, we can have another category of prophecy, which is New Testament prophecy. It can possibly contain errors. We are to test everything being said, and we are to hold what is good and reject what is not. Which, in that sense, makes New Testament prophecy sort of like teaching, right? My teaching is not equal in authority with Scripture. So you are encouraged to test everything you hear from this place against the Scripture. Alright? And that is very, very important. We, we do not try to get people to simply obey what we say. Which is why we, we guard the pulpit and we make sure that this is a place for the explanation of God's words. Does that make sense? Alright. 
which, by the way, is one manifestation of the Spirit, guarding the pulpit so that only God's words are permitted to be preached and explained. All right, so that is, that is what New Testament prophecy is. Let's go on to our second question here. What, what are the things that we should always insist upon when we, when we talk about the way in which we should the way in which we should show the Holy Spirit in our public gatherings. And believe it or not, this is exactly what Paul spends all of chapter 14 talking about. Let's pick it up in, in verse 6, and we'll read on and, and, and just talk through it. Paul mentions two things throughout this entire chapter that every church and every Christian should insist upon when it comes to the way in which we show the Holy Spirit in our public gatherings. We've already talked about love last week. Love is always to be there, but the two things Paul mentions in chapter 14 are, number one, intelligibility, and number two, order. The two things we should always insist upon, intelligibility and order. And my my daughter Kira is three and a half, and she's reading fancy Nancy books. So intelligibility, we would have to say, that's fancy for saying that people really just need to understand what they see and hear in our services and in our gatherings. All right, so people need to see and hear. Let's pick it up in verse 6. First of all, Paul tells us that believers need to hear or need to rather understand what they see and hear in our gatherings in order to be strengthened. Verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in those which build up the church. And having said this, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, verse 13, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. You want power, Corinthians. Pray for the power to interpret the thing that you're saying that nobody else can understand in the public gatherings of the church. Pray for that power at this moment. And he goes on and he says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Well, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, watch this, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? Which is my proof that God wants to hear people say amen when they know what's being said. There it is right there. I got Bible for you. So now you can talk back to me, right? You've got permission from the Bible itself. There it is. I knew we would. There it is. Amen. I got one already. Verse 17. You may be giving thanks well enough. Now, church, I want us to hear this. Let me speak to the conservative, self-labeled as non-charismatic. You may be giving thanks well enough. It's possible. They may be giving thanks to God well enough. But, nonetheless, in the public gatherings of the church, the other person is not being built up. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Now, so interestingly enough, Paul goes through these first 20 verses and is basically saying intelligibility is necessary for believers so that they might be strengthened by what they see and hear in the gatherings of the church. 
And in just a moment, he's going to say that intelligibility is also necessary for unbelievers, that they might be converted to faith in Christ by what they see and hear in our gatherings. So there's an assumption that we have unbelievers in our gatherings, and there is a very clear statement that we have no hidden agenda here. We really want them to be converted to faith in Christ. Which if you're here this morning and you are an unbeliever, which simply means that you, you have not at this point come to the place where because of, of a message you have heard about Jesus Christ, you have, been, you have been brought to the place in your heart and in your mind where you realize that you're separated from God, that you're living life according to an agenda and a guide that is, is not God's per se, but your own or somebody else's, and you've not yet come to the place where you've surrendered your life to Jesus, and you have said, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my Master, you are the one who has done everything for me, you have paid for my sins with your death on the cross, and I turn my life into you so that you might use the rest of my life for your purposes. If you've never done that, then you would be what the Bible calls here as an unbeliever. All right, so that... If you are here this morning, and that's you, we really do hope that before you leave, you are converted to faith in Jesus Christ, and that you begin to see the beginnings of these things, right? So that, that's how this works. And that's a, if you go to any other church or any other Christian gathering, and they don't tell you that that's what they want for you, they're probably not being completely upfront, or they're just trying to be cautious and careful, or worse, they don't understand the expectations God has for their gathering. Um, but we certainly have that expectation and desire here. We hope you would be converted to faith in Christ. Verse 21. After saying in verse 20 that it is a sign of spiritual immaturity to persist in this business of speaking in tongues out loud in the public gatherings of the church with no interpretation. He says, don't be children, but be mature. He goes on and says, now, you, you, you Corinthians seem to think that your ability to speak in tongues and to show the Holy Spirit in this way is a sign of your spiritual maturity and of God's approval of you. Yet Paul begins to say, let me explain how this works. Let me go back to the Old Testament and to the law. In verse 21 he says, in the law it is written by, by, the, by the tongues, or rather by people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now that is a quote from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. And the context of that is that God is threatening judgment against the nation of Israel. It's a divided kingdom at that time, and He is promising both Israel in the north and Judah in the south that a time of judgment is coming. And both of those kingdoms were later to be captured Israel in the north by Assyria in about 722 B.C., and, and Judah in the south by Babylon in about 587 B.C. And so he says, this is coming. And what God says here in, in you can see it in 1 Corinthians 14, 21, is that, okay, you're not listening to God. You're not responding to God. You're giving evidence of the fact that you are not believers, but unbelievers. And my patience has run its course now it is time for judgment. And, and interestingly, God's sign of His disapproval of His people and His sign of the fact that judgment had come was to send among them people who had unintelligible speech. Look, look at what He says. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. Even then they won't listen to Me. So God sends this thing, and Paul says, look, in the, in the Bible, when God begins to send large numbers of people speaking to you in ways that you cannot understand, it has been for the purpose of judgment. You see that in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. You see it here in Isaiah chapter 28. It was actually a sign of God's disapproval. This is not to say that God disapproved of them having foreigners among them. Read, a careful reading of the Bible will clearly do away with that thought. But what he's saying here is, no, I'm, I'm, let me bring an example from the Old Testament to show you that this was often a sign of God's judgment and disapproval. It was often an, an evidence that you were not living as believers, but as unbelievers. Now, it's important to understand why he's saying that, because you would, you would get confused and think there was a contradiction here 
after you kept reading through to verse 25, if you didn't understand the context of that quotation. As he goes on, you'll notice that Paul concludes something after this illustration from the Old Testament in verse 21. He concludes in verse 22, Thus, since that has often been a sign of God's disapproval and judgment, thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. A sign from God of what? Of His disapproval and judgment. And it was a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So here, so far in verse 22, it sounds like tongues are for unbelievers. And if you send tongues to unbelievers, it'll do something very good for them. If you're just reading verse 22 in isolation, and then it makes it sound like, but now tongues is not for believers, prophecy is for believers. So if you want to impact believers in a positive way, you give them prophecy. If you want to impact unbelievers in a positive way, you give them tongues. But that's not what Paul's saying. And, and so you don't want to read verse 22 in isolation. You want to read it in context and keep going, and it'll, it will clear up. Verse 23, he says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So, wait a minute, Paul. In verse 22, you said that tongues were a sign for unbelievers. Now you're saying in verse 23 that if we're all speaking in tongues and unbelievers enter, they're going to say we're out of our minds. Yes, Paul was just using an illustration from the Old Testament in verse 22 to say that tongues as a sign from God was not a sign of His approval or of their demonstrated belief, but rather a sign of His disapproval and as a sign of their unbelief and of God's judgment. And now he's moving on and re-picking up this, uh, this conversation that he had prior to that illustration, and he's saying, now look, let's take the case in church in verse 23, where everyone's gathered together, and everyone begins to speak in tongues. What, what would happen? Let's say an unbeliever or, or an outsider walks in. Paul says, they're all going to say you're out of your minds. But, verse 24, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, look at what happens. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Right, so prophecy has that kind of effect on the unbeliever as well. The unbeliever needs to hear and understand what is going on in the gathering, and the believer needs to hear and understand what is going on in the gathering. And this business of unintelligible speech, Paul is saying, may indeed build up the person speaking, but it does very little good for anyone outside of that person. And so at this point we would ask, great, so what? We have some truth now concerning prophecy, tongues, other manifestations of the Spirit. What do we do with all of this, and what will this practically look like uh, at Redemption Hill Church? You know, I, I do not have a full answer for you on that. A lot of it will be made up as we go along. Some of it is made up for us in verses 26 to 40. Do you want to read it? We're going to read it anyway. The very first thing it will look like at Redemption Hill is orderly. We are going to insist upon order because this is what we see in the Bible. And Paul begins to explain these practical outworkings of what he has taught to the Corinthians beginning here in verse 26. What then, brothers? I know you're interested in practical application here. What then? Well, when you come together, pay, pay close attention to Redemption Hill. We're about to get instruction from God in the Bible about what should happen concerning the manifestations of the Spirit when we come together. When you come together, here's what's true. Each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now the emphasis here is not on let all things be done. The emphasis here is on let all things be done for building up. 
right? It is the purpose for which all things are done, not how many things are actually done. Is that, is that okay? All right, so we want to put the emphasis on the right syllable, as they say. So there it is. I thought that was funny. Apparently, <laughs> apparently not many people shared, shared my opinion. That's all right. That works out that way sometimes. Verse 27. Let's get to the issue of tongues. Practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, when you come together is the context. Let's say one of you in the crowd senses the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon you in a special way. And, and it, the result is that you are speaking in an unknown tongue. What should we do as a church? If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three. And each in turn, and let someone interpret. Would you, would you think I was quenching the Spirit if I, if I did this crazy thing of saying, why don't we try that? Like, why don't we regulate the manifestations of the Holy Spirit the way the Bible tells us to? I'm not saying let's try it in the sense of, hey, one of you, do it. Do it right now. Speak in tongues. Let's see if there's an interpretation. No. But if this were to happen, if any speak in a tongue, no guarantee that it's going to happen. It's not expected that it's going to happen. But if it does happen... Let there be only two or at the most three. Each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, verse 28, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So here's what I think after reading verses 27 to 28. And you can concur. We haven't talked about this, but here's what I think. You're sensible people reading the Bible. I think if someone is here in a public gathering of the church and they begin to speak in a tongue, an unknown tongue that no one else can understand, I think it's only biblical to perhaps say to that person, maybe you tap them on the shoulder and they, they acknowledge you, hopefully, and you say, you know, you, I notice you seem to be praising God in an, in an unknown tongue. Do you feel like God has given you an interpretation for what you're saying? Well, no, I haven't. Okay. Can we do this? The Bible says to pray for the power to interpret what's being said. Can we, can we pray that God would give you an interpretation for what's being said? And maybe that person will start to pray. Maybe you can show them where in 1 Corinthians it says this. You're allowed to do this. It's very orderly. And, and hopefully they respond to the Bible and they begin to pray for the power to interpret what they're saying. And then maybe they want to immediately just share that interpretation. Well, maybe now they want to say that, or here's what I think God is saying, now they can begin to say it in a, in a language we all understand and that we can all test against the Scripture. And if it's too loud and something else is going on in the service, now we have another concern for order, don't we? Because even if someone is speaking... In, in a language we can understand, there are certain points at the service where it is completely inappropriate and disorderly for that to be too loud and to compete with something else. Like when I'm standing here preaching, it's wrong for any other voice to compete with what I'm doing. Not because of me, but because of what God has assigned to this time. When the musicians are playing, there's order in... Did you guys know that we were regulating the manifestations of the Spirit? Some of you have great musical gifts in terms of singing and playing instruments. You don't just bring your instrument to church and say, well, I'm not on the worship team this morning, but I can sure play my violin. And, and you know, we just don't do that because it's out of order. Does that make sense? You may be giving thanks well enough, but it's a distraction at that point. Is everybody clear? Alright, so it is very good and very biblical to regulate spiritual gifts and the manifestations of the Spirit in biblical ways. And remember that the Holy Spirit, again, inspired these passages. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is saying, regulate the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in these ways. So you're not putting God in a box. And like we said last week, if you are, you're putting God in a box that He Himself has made and has labeled with the following words. Put God in this box. 
in your gatherings. Okay? So that's okay. That's okay. So that's one of the ways you'll see it practically working with the issue of tongues. What about this issue of prophecy? Well, I, I would encourage you guys to even, with all of these things, think beyond Sunday morning. Everybody is thinking about Sunday morning when they think about these things. But there are other public gatherings of the church. There are gatherings of the church in, in homes during the week, like Andrew and Liz Walker have a, a community that, that meets in their home on Monday nights out there in the Glen Allen area. And so when that community comes together, it, it's very possible and typical at times, I'm sure, as they're discussing the Word of God and, and what's going on in their lives that week, that, that somebody might have something to say by, by instruction from the Scriptures. They're, they're, I have something I, I feel like God wants to share with the group. Well, then they run that by Andrew, who's facilitating. And Andrew tests it against the Scriptures. The rest of them, if Andrew says, okay, yeah, why don't you go ahead and share that with the group? Then everybody else is told to carefully weigh what is being said. Hold what is good. Reject what is not. And so that person, in a sense, is prophesying. They're speaking to other people for their strengthening, encouragement, and their comfort. They're upbuilding, their consolation, that sort of thing. So many of you have probably experienced this before without even realizing it. Hey, if, if one speaker... Look at, look at what he goes on to say. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak. Imagine your community gathering now. Let two or three prophets speak. And let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. You know what he basically said? Just make sure one person speaks at a time. Really deep, profound, and spiritual, right? Make sure one person is speaking at a time in your public gatherings. Why? Well, verse 31. Or I didn't read 30, did I? If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Why? Because we want all to learn and be encouraged. And it's more difficult for that to happen when everyone's speaking at the same time. So there's got to be order in our gatherings. He goes on, verse 32. In case you think this is not possible because you're rendered out of control when the Holy Spirit begins to show Himself through you, He says, no, no, once again, there's control. The spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. You can help it. And you will help it. In this church, you will help it. Or we will help you. You can say amen. There is order here. There is. Uh, he goes on, and this gets very difficult. I'm sorry for this, guys. I will not be able to explain everything about what's said here. I'm so sorry. But we'll read it. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. I'm so sorry to do this. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. And some of the women are saying, yeah, like that's a big help. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, I can tell you what Paul is not saying. If you go back a few chapters earlier in, in, verse, in chapter 11, he's actually giving instructions there about how women are to pray and prophesy in the gatherings of the church. We know, therefore, that when he comes three chapters later and says they are to remain silent in this section of the letter, he's not saying, you know, the whole Austin Powers www.zipit.com. That's not what he's saying. That's not what's going on here. It's important to understand that. All right? What he's saying here is better understood as you go on through chapter 14, verse 36, and you keep reading. He actually says, basically, hold on. Was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Remember, he's responding to a letter the Corinthians have written, as well as some verbal reports that they've shared with him. And he's saying, look, it, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches as the law also says. As the law also says, but it, was it from you that the Word of God came? 
Did I tell you that? Was it, who's the apostle here? Was it, are the prophets now speaking the authoritative word for the church over and against the written word of the apostle? Was it from you that the word of God came? Notice he says here, they, they're saying, as in all the congregations of the saints. Here's my opinion. I think he's quoting a section of what they're saying or what they've written. My opinion. As in all the congregations of the saints, the women should keep silent. Verse 36, watch carefully. Watch how this fits. As the law also says, up in verse 34, it's, it's like Paul says, as the law also says. Look at the question in verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God came? And look at the other question in verse 36. It seems to answer the business of, as in all the congregations of the saints. Watch this. He says, or... Are you the only ones it has reached? So that's the way you're saying it should work in your church? As in all the congregations of the saints, are you the only people the Word of God has reached? No. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And I even think Paul anticipates this in chapter 1. I wasn't going to do this, wasn't in my notes. But uh, if you look at chapter 1, it's very interesting. In his introduction, there's a lengthy introduction here. And you have to ask yourself why Paul says this. In verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you the only ones it has reached? No, let's straighten some things out here. I'm the apostle. My word is the command of the Lord, not the word of your prophets. And you are not the only people whom, that have received the word of the Lord. You know, it has gone out far beyond Corinth. And we're all grateful that the word of the Lord has gone out far beyond Corinth. Because if this were the only witness of the Lord, we'd be in trouble. So here, I did more than I had planned to do, but let me just say that to say, there are more ways to look at this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 than to just immediately assume that Paul is saying women can't speak in the public gathering of the church. All right, And, and there's a lot more study you can do on that at, on your own, and I'd be willing to point you in, in some directions that would be helpful. Um, Paul goes on, and he says here in verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, meaning what he's writing, then he is not recognized. And then he says, so my, concludes, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So if you were to ask me, practically speaking, what is all this going to look like at Redemption Hill? That's what I would tell you. I, I would say we're going to make every effort to encourage people to seek those manifestations of the Spirit that Paul calls the greater gifts, those suited for building up the rest of the church, intelligible, understandable, Spirit-led speech that is spoken to people for their strengthening, their encouragement, their consolation. I, I would say we would also make an honest effort not to forbid any legitimate or authentic manifestation of the Spirit, even like speaking in tongues. Because here it is, Paul says in verse 39, do not forbid speaking in tongues. But what we would like to do is to redirect any eagerness to do something like that in the public gatherings of the church in a way that could begin to compete with other elements of the service. We would like to redirect that eagerness towards something that is more suited for building up those around us at the time. And in the same breath, we would like to encourage that person privately to continue to praise God in ways that build that person up and not to in any way quench the Spirit. When it comes to prophecies, we want to believe in what the Bible teaches about things like New Testament prophecy. Not something that if it contains any errors invites a death sentence upon the person, but we want to encourage people to speak to others in ways that would build them up in 
and it, let's, say, let's say someone's going on a missions trip and, and there's a time of prayer in their small community gathering and, and they're saying, look, does anyone get a sense from anything from the Lord that you'd like to say to this person as they prepare for their trip? Then someone at that moment may sense something from the Lord and we want to make room for that and, and everyone else can weigh what is being said. And it is okay to do that where there is order. And it is so dangerous to do it where there is not. But because of the dangers, we don't want to quench the Spirit and despise prophecies. No, we want to obey what the Bible says. And we want to accept the difficulties that come along with obeying what the Bible says. And so for us at Redemption Hill, we'll conclude the way that Paul does. Verse 39, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And I'll end with this. When it comes to the manifestations of the Spirit, one that you can always count on here at Redemption Hill, that you can always count on seeing in our public gatherings, is actually mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 10 to 12. The Apostle Paul says, or rather the Apostle Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. When you hear the good news of Jesus Christ preached to you, it is being preached by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The preaching of the Gospel is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And so every week you have been witnessing the manifestations of the Holy Spirit here at Redemption Hill Church in a very orderly manner consistent with the Bible. And that is what you can expect to continue. Do you know this good news or this gospel that Peter is referring to here? He's speaking about Jesus and he is saying that one day at just the right time, God looked at a world that was altogether in rebellion against him. And instead of condemning human beings to the fate which they otherwise deserved and would have received apart from God's initiative and His loving action, God sent forth His own Son, Jesus, into this world of rebellion. And with love in His heart for both His Father and for the human race, Jesus extended to human beings a privilege that was not extended to the angels who sinned. The angels have sinned, they have been brought under God's curse and judgment, and there is no opportunity for those fallen angels to receive forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ. But Jesus came to earth and extended to us an opportunity to benefit from His life, His death, and His resurrection in a way that angels cannot. And today, that offer of grace still stands. It is a limited time offer only. It has an expiration date. But as you sit here today listening to me, hear these words from me as if they are coming to you straight from God. Jesus lived a perfect life before His Father, before God, our Heavenly Father. And God accepts Jesus' life from Him as if He had received that kind of life from us such that He now credits us with Jesus' very righteousness when we put our faith in Christ. In the same way, God accepts Jesus' death on the cross as if we had died for our own sins, which is the penalty that we deserve because of our sins against God. But God receives Jesus' death in our place for us, and He receives Jesus' life in our place for us. 
And we are credited with these things when we come to God in humility and we say, Lord, I now understand that I need what Jesus has done for me in order for my sins to be forgiven and for me to be welcomed back to you as, an, as a forgiven sinner. When you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and in what He has done for us leading up to and upon the cross, God promises to pardon all of your sins, all of your sins, past, present, and future, and to welcome you as His child forever. With all the authority of heaven, I extend that invitation and that offer to you this morning. If you have never received Christ as payment for your sin, and as your rightful King and Lord, the one to whom you owe your allegiance, your obedience, and your entire life, I beg you and plead with you to do so this morning. Turn away from sin. Turn away from death. Turn away from God's wrath. You have received an offer the angels will never receive. Please take it. And don't let any poor example of Christianity or any other religion get in your way. We're talking about an offer God has graciously made to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask that You would help us to no longer give ourselves that excuse of ignoring Your offer and ignoring Your voice because of something some Christian did to us in the past. Those things may have been very bad and very hurtful, but I pray that You would remove that, that false obstacle that stands in our way this morning. And if there's anyone in the room or anyone listening over the computer who has yet to receive Your grace through Jesus Christ, I pray that right now You would not only convince them of their need for Jesus, but that You would also compel them to come to the cross to receive forgiveness and to go from the cross with an assurance that their, their sins have been forgiven and that they stand in a new place with you. Amen.